There's almost open warfare now between Sally Busby and Fred Ryan. This has created what I believe to be an untenable situation where at some point, either Sally or Fred is going to have to be out of the building. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Thursday, December 15th. Today, Dylan Byers joins me to talk about the drama at the Washington Post. Publisher and CEO Fred Ryan addressed newsroom employees this week, told them layoffs are coming, and then refused to answer tough questions about the future. All of it played out nearly in real time on Twitter, and it's renewing questions about Ryan's stewardship of the Post in tumultuous media times. And later, Eric Gardner is here to discuss the biggest surprise in the Justice Department's indictment of fallen crypto prodigy Sam Bankman-Fried. Eric also digs into why the Biden administration has the unlikely upper hand in its antitrust battle with Microsoft. We'll hear about all that and more in today's episode of Powers That Be. Hey guys, it's Peter. I travel all the time, especially in an election year. And as we all know, what luggage you choose matters. Briggs and Riley is my personal favorite because their luggage performs. It's extremely durable, has amazing features that make packing and getting around easier, and they have the best lifetime guarantee in the industry. If your bag is ever broken or damaged, they will repair it free of charge. No proof of purchase needed, no questions asked, even if an airline damages your bag. All features were created to address customer pain points for a better travel experience. They're extremely durable with rigorous testing and premium materials to last for life. And one thing I love, they're supremely smooth, shock-absorbing wheels for easy gliding through your travels through whatever airport you're zooming through. And hot off the press, the Simpatico collection of hard-sided luggage. It's new and improved and just launched on BriggsRiley.com. That's Briggs-Riley.com. It has the new one-touch feature, which allows you to expand your luggage, pack it, and then compress it to its original size. So a carry-on can still fit in the overhead compartment, and that's just one of the new features. It's available in black, navy, and olive. So check out all the Briggs and Riley offerings at Briggs-Riley.com. That's Briggs-Riley.com. Happy Thursday, everybody. I'm joined today by Dylan Byers, who, oh, by the way, Dylan, congrats. You are one of uh, Mediaite's most influential people in media, I should mention, (laughs) at the beginning of the podcast. Congrats. One out of 100? <laughs> uh, you know, Peter, one out of seventy-five. Uh, <laughs> you know, I it's um, it was reminding me a little bit when I was a kid. I would watch the MTV at VH1 top. You know, they do the top five hundred albums of all time or something, and and it's just like really you're gonna put this hip hop album in front of that Bob Dylan album, but behind this, you know, Whitney Houston album. You're like, well, it's so arbitrary. But I will say that it's an honor. I, I have an ego like everyone. It is wonderful to see your name in print. It's nice, better still to see your name in print and only have nice things be said about you. And that just, uh, I, that happens so rarely for me. So I felt honored and, and I will take it. I will say, because I am a media reporter, I do glance at the list and I certainly see that I am not on it and think to myself, what do they know? And then you get on the list. You're like, hey, mom, I made a list. <laughs> <laughs> so, Dylan, I, I think, correct if I'm wrong, you reported a few weeks, a few months ago that the Post was going to do some layoffs. 
Fred Ryan, the possibly embattled publisher of the Washington Post, and you've written about him as well for Puck, had a town hall meeting Tuesday in Washington, and it didn't go well, did it? No, it didn't go well at all. He basically stood up in front of this audience of, um, it's an all-employee newsroom town hall. They've got over a thousand employees and uh, said the uncomfortable thing that they would be laying people off in the first quarter of next year. This is always a convenient thing that media executives do during layoffs. They say it'll only represent somewhere in the one per single percentage points of our company. Well, that could be 5%. That could be 9%. It will result in very real hard job losses for people. That's what matters here. And then what happened is... A stunned newsroom had questions. I'm not even, even by the way, the executive editor, uh, Sally Busby, seemed stunned, according to the sources I spoke with, and had questions for him. And he didn't want to take those questions. And he said he wasn't going to let the town hall turn into a grievance session for the union. I don't think that was a particularly diplomatic way to handle that situation. He sounds like the Ronald Reagan disciple that he is. <laughs> right. There is, you know, it's so funny because I did talk, I talked to someone very high up at the Post who said, um, on the editorial side, who said it was reminiscent of these moments when a politician gets caught at the mic with a question they didn't anticipate and they sort of just walk off stage. That's more or less what happened here. So he walks off as these questions are being shouted at him. He at least feels enough self-awareness to send out a memo later in the day, sort of trying to provide more clarity around the cuts, which you can't really do until you actually just tell the people who are going to be laid off that they're going to be laid off. But he leaves this town hall meeting. Sally is there. And in Fred's absence, Sally, the executive editor, is sort of the person who people have to go to to ask questions about what this means and what's going to happen. And all of this is happening against the backdrop of what I have reported a few times in recent months, which is there is a lot of finger pointing and blame going around at the highest levels of the Washington Post between Fred Ryan and Sally Busby over the current state of the Post's business, which is, as we've discussed many times, this meteoric growth during the Trump era with no post-Trump game plan for success. And as a result, there's almost open warfare now between Sally Busby and Fred Ryan. This has created what I believe to be an untenable situation where at some point in the months ahead, by this time next year at the latest, either Sally or Fred is going to have to be out of the building. I do want to get into what's next, but just one observation about this town hall. I first saw this on Twitter. Uh, a bunch of Washington Post employees filmed elements of the town hall, especially the part where Fred kind of dodged questions about layoffs and refused to answer questions and then walked off, especially after the the New York Times walkout last week. It reminded me of the fact that newsroom guilds and unions at media organizations aren't your typical labor groups. They're not your typical employee bases. I mean, these are journalists who have their phones at their fingers and are willing to tweet this stuff out in almost real time. On top of that, the Washington Post has a recent history with Felicia Sanmez, that drama uh, with Dave Weigel, Taylor Lorenz does this frequently where they are, not everyone at the Post does this, but employees who are willing to air internal work business publicly on Twitter. And so the instinct of the Post <laughs> newsroom is just to tweet this shit out 
And it, that is not a criticism of the newsroom. It's a criticism of Fred Ryan because he should be aware that you got to come to play here. You can't just walk away and think this stuff isn't going to leak out. You know, you've talked about Chris Licht and CNN, like he's held town halls. That stuff leaked to you, Dylan Byers. But like there was enough, I guess, respect for the institution to not like immediately tweet out in real time what was happening in these internal town hall meetings with management. This is really the most telling detail about that town hall. It is not what was captured on video. It is the fact that it was captured on video and tweeted out by, in this case, the national correspondent. The video that's been making the rounds on Twitter of Fred Ryan walking out and not answering questions comes from the Post's own national correspondent. You're right. When I was reporting back on those Jason Kylar town halls, on the Chris Lick town halls at CNN, maybe someone felt compelled to record it and send it to me or to leak details about what happened so long as they remained anonymous. But the idea that you would just go out and effectively broadcast the mistakes that your own publisher and CEO is making really tells you about how much the, the sort of vote of no confidence that the newsroom has in Fred Ryan's leadership. This is not a knee-jerk reaction to layoffs. Nobody likes being laid off. Reporters certainly don't like being laid off, and they feel like they have platforms to talk about that. This is something that has been building up over the course of several months as conversations in the newsroom about Fred's leadership, about his inability to prepare the post for success in that post-Trump landscape, about the tensions between Fred and his hand-picked executive editor, Sally Busby, and this sort of looming question about how it is that the paper that is owned by Jeff Bezos, one of the richest men in the world, and also one of the most innovative men in the world, can't figure out a way to succeed. And all of that, well, there are frustrations with Sally. All of that is really starting to fall at Fred's feet. I'm reading from Oliver Darcy's piece about this on, on CNN, and he quotes the communications chief at The Post, Kathy Baird, saying that we are directing our resources into coverage, products, people, in service of providing high value to our subscriber and new audiences. She says, yes, positions will be eliminated, but she also says, quote, this will not be a net reduction in post headcount. In other words, trim off some of the unnecessary positions in their eyes and then invest in new products, coverage, et cetera. What does that actually look like and how can that be executed in a way that saves both Sally Busby and Fred Ryan? When executives say this in newsrooms, on the one hand, they mean it in the long term, right? Because what they're doing is they are identifying jobs, beats, coverage areas that are not translating to subscriptions, that are not translating to ad revenue. And by the way, they should do that. Just because you have a job at a news organization does not mean you are guaranteed that job if it's not doing anything for the business. And we have to be sort of clear-eyed and, and a little cold-hearted about that. On the other hand, it's a very convenient way of basically saying that you've got a 18-month, three-year, five-year plan. And in that plan, provided everything goes according to plan, there will be more jobs and there will be more revenue and everything will be great. But that does not mean that, that the Post is going to get rid of 150 jobs early next year and then just come up with 150 new jobs right away. So I think the trickiest part about this as I watch these layoffs play out across the media industry is 
these businesses do need to recalibrate and they do need to position themselves for success. And it would be a dereliction of duty for an executive leader to just let something continue to go if it's not doing anything meaningful for the business. At the same time, there is this sort of insensitivity to the people who are getting laid off. And there's these promises that continue to be made or, or this sugarcoating that happens where you say, oh, we're not reducing headcount. Well, you are. You are reducing headcount. And then if everything goes according to plan, you will hire again because that is what happens. That doesn't make anything easier for anybody. Dylan, a climate reporter for the Washington Post um, with the Washington Post Guild uh, as their Twitter avatar tweeted this out. Uh, quote, he ran away. He's the publisher of a news organization and he wouldn't take questions from his staff. Democracy dies in darkness, huh? Which is a pull quote from a Vanity Fair piece. That's pretty savage right there. Maybe they'll have to change their slogan back to, if you don't get it, you don't get it. <laughs> I really feel like my beat, it is the media beat and it is the business of media, but it is also a study in leadership and in the absence of leadership. And what is required of leaders are people who can go before their newsrooms and deliver difficult news in a way that meets the standards of their own journalists. It's not an easy business. And I know that at the executive level, people can often feel that journalists are a whiny, needy, gossipy bunch. But the truth is, is that these are the people who you employ every day to go out there and hold other people accountable and ask tough questions. And if you want to be the leader of a newsroom, you have to be able to be accountable and answer tough questions. And like you said, you have to have the awareness of optics that comes with walking off stage as people are shouting questions at you and knowing that, that your journalists know how to capture audio and video. This was an epic fail on his part. And I think that the ramifications, given this landscape, given everything that's sort of been brewing in terms of the frustrations with the post leadership over the past several months, could end up in Fred's own layoff. All right, Dylan. Well, I look forward to taking your class on leadership at the UCLA Anderson School of Management <laughs> uh, next quarter. Thank you for your insights. And we will talk to you soon. All right, Peter. Thank you. When we come back, Ben Landy asks Eric Gardner why Microsoft might get M&A blocked by the U.S. government. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash powers that be, netsuite.com slash powers that be. That's netsuite.com slash powers that be. 
This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Ben Landy, here in the studio with... Eric Gardner, joining us in New York. Hey, Eric. Hey, great to be here. Eric, I want to talk to you about your most recent reporting on the Activision deal, um, Microsoft trying to buy that company and getting shut down by the FTC. But before we get into that, of course, I have to ask you about Sam Bankman-Fried being arrested in the Bahamas the other night. He has been charged by the Department of Justice and the Southern District of New York with eight charges. There's also a litany of civil charges from the SEC. I'm just curious, as you've gotten into the indictment and started reading it, what has been your impression so far? Yeah, well, I'm not overall surprised. There are little things that surprise me. Uh, The fact that he was arrested and charged on the night before he was scheduled to testify in Congress is a little strange. The fact that, that he was charged with something like political finance, I don't think a lot of people saw that one coming. There weren't too many details in the complaint and indictment. And I guess that's not particularly unusual, but I don't think we learned a hell of a lot new about the situation. We just learned, you know, basically what prosecutors think that they can prove here. They uh, clearly have seized on a lot of his public statements. They've been paying attention to it and they use that in, in their uh, indictment. And uh, we'll see. I, he's certainly not in a good position right now. That's That's for sure. Was there anything there that surprised you or maybe was an indication about the type of strategy that the DOJ is going to pursue here? Nothing that shocked me. The only thing I was a little surprised at was how much prosecutors relied on his public statements. I was expecting a little bit more of inside conversations, you know, how he lied to investors and insiders within the FTX uh, ecosphere. But instead, they really just rehash a lot of things that were, were generally known. I'm not sure whether that's going to be enough, but I also don't think that this is the end of the ball game. I think this is, you know, the first or second inning. Yeah, well, we'll definitely be staying on the story and come back to it. Well, let me also ask you about Microsoft's deal to buy Activision Blizzard. That's the, the big video game maker. They put forward a deal to acquire the company for $69 billion a number of months ago. That pending deal has since been blocked by the FTC. We'll get into why you think the Biden administration might have the upper hand here. But first, just on the merits, you've argued that this kind of looks like a weak case. Why do you think that? Yeah, I do think it's a, a weak case just on from an antitrust perspective on the basis of, you know, what, you know, the government needs to show that this merger will lessen competition. You know, the reason is, is basically, you know, their theory is that Call of Duty, which is one of Activision's biggest games, is so valuable that if Microsoft holds it for itself and doesn't, you know, allow its competitors to have access to this title, that's going to change the markets. From what I read in the complaint, the market itself doesn't seem exactly well-defined. Is the market console makers? If so, maybe they're competing against Sony, but to me, it's not clear why Nintendo isn't included in that definition or why any device that's capable of playing games isn't a competitor as well to Microsoft. So I I think that there are real challenges 
from an antitrust perspective in in showing this. I mean, a few years ago, the Justice Department tried to block AT&T's acquisition of Time Warner. And to me, that was a stronger case. And ultimately, the government lost that case. So, so now, you know, here we are a few years later and the government's trying to block Microsoft's acquisition of Activision and it's a weaker case. And yet, I think that they have actually a better chance. Well, you're not the only one. If you look at the... Um price that Activision stock is trading on Wall Street, it's about $20 or so below the price that Microsoft has offered to buy the company on a per share basis. So investors also are worried that this deal is not going to close. What is your rationale for thinking that? It's a couple of things. This deal also faces a lot of challenges from European authorities, from Chinese authorities, and and the deal needs to clear a lot of different hurdles. But at the FTC, they have brought an internal proceeding This is before their own administrative judge, and they almost always win before their administrative judge. And if they lose before their administrative judge, they can appeal it to basically themselves, to, you know, the commissioners who are dominated by Democrats and are, you know, anti-M&A. It's very likely that the commission will vote to stop this merger. That's going to take years. Eventually, the case might get to a court, but that's a few years out. In the meantime, uh, we have the the merger agreement between Microsoft and Activision and the deadline for closing this merger as it currently stands is July 18th. There's no way that the authorities are going to bless this merger before then. Uh, So there's going to be the need to negotiate an amendment but there are all sorts of complicating factors on that, including the, the fact that Activision is set to get a $3 billion breakup fee for basically doing nothing. So uh, there's just so many headwinds that Microsoft is facing on this merger, despite the fact that I do think that they have a good position in court. I have real skepticism that it's going to matter. Quick last thought. Do you have a um, expectation for a potential settlement? I don't. I mean, I, uh, you know, I don't think that Lena Khan at the FTC wants a settlement. The, uh, the trend of late from uh, regulators has been not to accept uh, behavioral conditions on mergers. They don't think that it stopped the abuse. Now, that said, if I was Microsoft, I think what I would try to do is try to make a deal with European authorities and and try to gather some momentum there. But uh, overall, I I don't expect there to be a settlement here. I think this merger is probably going to collapse. Well, either way, it sounds like there's a lot of Call of Duty fans over at the FTC, which is uh, pretty funny just by itself. Eric, thanks as always. My pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13.